And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Kellen and Alex Show. Cheers, boys. Cheers. 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 Sans Kellen. He's in Cali? Sans Kellen. He is back in Cali for uh, a wedding. His sister's getting married. Oh, yeah, nice. And met her spouse on Catholic Match. So dating sites do work on occasion. I I had a Catholic Match account for like 10 minutes before I... Uh, before you got up. spammed with messages you know no, it was yeah, like a hundred girls are interested it was like morbid curiosity i'm like i want to see what the site's like then i got it. i'm like wait i have no interest in this product why product <laughs> wait wait what, what was uh which site was it catholic it was match? catholic match yeah okay hmm. so ladies i'm sorry i'm not on catholic match as of now he's off the table man yeah. you know what's on the table log oh, of Vulan 16 year we man. we're simping hard for this whiskey this is a fantastic whiskey uh eily scotch Yes. So the Eiley Scotch have, they're known for their smokiness, their peatiness. This is age 16 years. I was, how old was I? I'll be turning 22 in a week. Yeah. Like and I'm 22 so. in like a month and a half. So so 16 years ago. We were five-year-olds. Yeah, like five, six-year-olds. Barreled, yeah. like that when this was barreled. That's I'm just gonna, a weird, I'm not going to say like how old I was because <laughs> otherwise that would be uh We don't want to get <laughs> FBI, FBI uh, open up. FBI. Anyways, so we were, we were some young lads back then, five years old, something like that. And they were putting this in a barrel. That that's one of the really cool things about now. Granted, this was a hundred dollar whiskey, right? So this was a a prime whiskey. Weird flex, but okay. Weird flex, but okay. You know, it's not Hennessy or something. You know that. How did Hennessy become like the gangster? Dude, whiskey? have you had Hennessy? It's, it's a, no, I have. Okay, it's a well, fairly if you expensive haven't had Hennessy, cognac, then You can't say though. anything about it because <laughs> I think it's I think it's my top five best yeah. alcoholic. It's a cognac, ever. right? It's so it's really, it's good. Cognac. It's 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 pretty divine. It is good. Yes. So, yeah. so what's the difference? So cognac is it's, uh, it's wine. It's brandy? an aged wine. Yeah, it's aged wine. It, it's a brandy that was made in cognac, France. Is that what it is? Or brandy? I don't know. We just, uh, <laughs> I just we, were, we were too young to actually appreciate it. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's. I mean, I great. see it's in the like glassed off section at Kroger. It's a cool looking so, bottle too. Yeah, Lagavulin sixteen year though. Something else. I just love the smokiness and like the peatiness of. Yeah, of these Eiley scotches because they got like Eiley has the really peatiness. There's Highland, uh, which is obviously in the north. There's the uh, the Glen territory, which I don't even know where that is. Okay, just clarification. I was 100% correct. Cognac is a brandy that was distilled in Cognac in Western France. Hmm. So the more you know. Dude, hit me up if Hen- you, Hennessy for, my, next. for your booze, for your <laughs> Wait, alcohol so, facts. Hit me up. Wait, so is Hennessy made in... In France, then, yes. is it cognac? It's okay. cognac. I've never met a Frenchman named Hennessy, <laughs> but I guess it's possible. I don't know. Hmm. I just, it's, uh, I, what I want to know is how it became like the gangster thing, you know? Like, I don't know. Have Hennessy yeah, and whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I used to go to this barber shop and on every one of the shelves, for, for you know how each barber has their own little thing with all their hairbrushes and all the rest. Yeah. Every single one of them had the Hennessy bottle like on their shelf. <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, dope. I don't want my, Barber to be tipsy, just saying. I'm sure they weren't drinking it. They were no, just I know, keeping the bottle the, around the show. Just the optics. That, I don't want to yeah. sip and barber, man. I want their hands to be steady around my ears. You know. By the way, I didn't even introduce yeah. you guys. Gabe, oh, okay. my this brother's is, here. Yeah. I'm Gabriel and uh, John Selly. Yes, the sir. lad, returning. the one, the only, the ignorant lad. He's returning. Uh, Back. Yeah, dude. Lagavulin. I'm. I'm off the dude. Whiskeys. All right. There's a whole bourbon, scotches, single malts. I think when I'm a Scotchman. 
I when it comes to it, if I had to choose from like the best bourbon and just the best scotch single malt, I mean single malts are going to win basically every time. Yeah, yeah, I agree as well. I think I think my favorite type um, comes from Japan. Oh, Japan yeah. makes insanely good whiskeys. Hibiki, Centauri Hibiki, still a, and Centauri Toki. Hibiki man. Yes, till I die. Hopefully, it's very, <laughs> if I remember right, we're trying very, to convert you with this Eile. It was very. It's popular. great. It's it really great. Clear, like clean, just like essence. If I remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, guys, we're a bunch of amateurs. We we know yeah. we're amateurs. If you, if any of you out there are whiskey professionals, hit us up. Maybe we'll get you on the podcast. But um, the whiskey professionals probably already left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, well, that was lame. You know, but it's Long one of those Hulin, things. Too. That's a normie whiskey. Yeah, exactly. Like, I wonder if there's like a whole like elite. I'm sure there is some like elite. You know, they have like sommeliers for wine. I'm sure there's like some people who are like, yeah, I've had like every whiskey. I have it all. I'm a whiskey. Yeah. By the way, you know Dr. Haas in um yeah 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 in I Austria. Took, I took a huge class with whiskey him. guy. Yeah. He is. Yes, I know he yeah. also had some stuff to say about Belgian beers, which makes me respect him because you're a Belgian beer guy. I am a beer guy, and I respect the Belgians. Belgians are, I mean, they're they got their monasteries, they got their their trips, right? In that, like a triple something, triple Belgian brew, uh, <laughs> triples quads. If you're into, I think how, how did they like? What's the? Do you know the difference? Triples, oh, trips, quads, whatever. I'm, I'm dropping my. My brewing nomenclature here. I, I'm not remembering it right, but the mash—that's what it's called. I think do they it, like make it a like a thicker mash or something like that. I think it has to do with the mash. Like it's like three times or four times as thick, and then you get the more rich flavor. Hmm. Um, the world of like fine liquors is vast. Yeah, it's, like it's, I, a, it's a whole like it could be your hobby. You know what I mean? You you go to you go to Scotland, you travel and do whiskeys and stuff. Like there's all these different tequilas and stuff. To me, I look. Call me a normie. I just, I don't really like tequilas all that much. Maybe I've just had like Jose Cuervo and stuff. I haven't had a, a ton of different tequilas, but yeah, to my knowledge, it's just, it, there's just mixer. a weird taste throughout all of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know enough, but uh, okay, I've only, yeah. I've only got my toes wet with scotch and bourbon. So triple got its name because triple the amount of ingredients. Hmm. The amount of ingredients? That's what it says. So I don't, huh. I think that means, Yeah. They just like load it full of whatever they put in those yeah, Belgian so it has beers. Yeah, really like powerful, like not powerful, but the really strong flavor to it. Hmm. Have you had any like Trappist Dale or Belgian triples or? Quads? I've had a few. They're so but expensive I, I don't, though. Yeah, uh, they're so. Yeah, that costly. was my early summer because I'm a like I said I'm a beer guy, so I was getting into them a little bit, starting to dabble in the Trappist stuff. So support the monks, of course. All all just altruistic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about the dream the other day, which is uh, just wait until you have like. A few kids you can play sports or whatever, and then just showing up to games yes. totally like five beers in hand, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just watching from Go the sidelines. Son. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's all right, son. <laughs> is that the dream? Back though? in my day, I don't know. Montana's still the dream. That's that's the dream no, that for me, is. man. Montana, long beard. Get the cabin in Montana. Lots of whiskeys. Have the vegetable garden, a couple heifers out back or something. See, but how far do you need to be from like the the nearest grocery store? It has to be something like ridiculous, like 50 or 60 miles. No, I mean, I have to be close to a small town with a parish. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, there were were some pretty weird parishes. We went to Montana one time and uh, (laughs) it was a weird, it was just a weird parish. We went to Montana. It was like a Protestant parish. Wait, what? It was like a Protestant parish but almost it, because it was, we went to a parish in Montana and the uh, the priest gave like this really weird, you know, he would ask like the crowd for oh, these yeah. questions and yeah, all the yeah. rest. I, and, I've had stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was one of those also where they like, he was like, 
oh, let all the little children come to the front for my homily and stuff. And I don't know. Look, I'll just say it. Priest today, you can't really do any of that stuff, <laughs> even if it's just ostensibly like whatever. People just get, I don't know, it's kind of cringe at this point. Like, all the children come to the front and sit during my homily and whatever. No, I'm sorry. It's just not, it's not going to work out. <laughs> so, okay, I got a question. So the Anyways. homily was supposed to be reserved for the gospel, right? So whatever the gospel was, the priest was supposed to speak about that gospel. Right. I've been to a lot of masses where the gospel reading is never mentioned in the homily. How did that fall off? How did that like practice of homiletics or whatever? Well, if you, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's because they just think that priests can't really give good, like they try I mean, to make it, it streamlined. It's up, it's up and so the- they say like stuff like t- tell a story maybe comment on the gospel, give a good lesson. It also depends on the priest, right, too? Because it's his, ultimately, it's his decision on what he speaks about right. in as the, the sermon. As the pastor or whatever. Yeah, but I've noticed that, too. Like, I, I don't know where I got the impression. You obviously have it, too, so I didn't, like, make it up, probably. But I, I was under the impression, also, that it was supposed to, like, relate to the gospels and the readings and explain yeah, know, what's going it. on there. Yeah. But, yeah, so I've... I'm not like annoyed, but I've negatively noticed when it's like, wait a minute, this had nothing to do with the readings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's literally, it's like the, the reading where like Peter's taking the, uh, the, the temple tax thing out of the fish and he's like doing a sermon on, uh, I don't know, on being kind to people or something. <laughs> yeah, charity. You're, like, <laughs> yeah. you're like charity, huh? He pulled a coin out of a fish. Yeah. I don't know if this relates too much. Yeah. But uh, yeah. by the way, that's a really, do, do you know the, uh, the drachma that he pulls out of the fish? So I never knew this, but I think it's a Han interpretation. But, um, when, when Jesus says to him, uh, the temple tax people come to Peter and they're like, Hey, yeah. Do you guys pay tax? Peter's like, Oh frick. So he goes to, uh, he goes to Jesus and, and he's going to ask Jesus, Hey, do we pay the tax? But Jesus, like, he knows what he's about to say, right? So he tells Peter, hey, Peter, who do kings take their taxes from? Their sons or others? Peter's like, uh, from others. You don't take it from your sons. They're part of your household, whatever. And then Jesus says, so the sons are free. And then he says, but to not show offense to them, go into the, uh, go take a net, throw it into the ocean. You'll catch a fish and it'll be one drachma and you'll give it uh, half for me and half for you. Any thoughts on that? Interpretation I have of that no parable. idea. I have no idea. <laughs> How did the coin get means. in the fish's mouth? That's all. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Some guy was just like, "Oh, nice, nice drachma," and then the fish, you know, swoops out and eats it. I guess I don't Mine. know. Who knows? Well, what do you think? You're what, what so do you the, think about the it? The point of this is uh, pollution and our need to make sure drachmas <laughs> don't fall in the ocean. Right. We got to save the fishes. Uh, so very modern. Um. All right. So when Jesus says, "To whom do this? To uh, do kings take?" their toll or their tribute taxes from sons or from others. And he says from others. And then Jesus says, so the sons are free. Okay. So you kind of have to situate it within the gospel. Cause I believe this is in, this is past in Matthew, but this is past the part where, um, Jesus says to Peter, you are rocking on this rock. I'll build my church. Right. But do you know what he says before that? He says, blessed are you Peter? No, he actually says, blessed are you Simon Barjona. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you know who Peter's father's name is? This Jonah, is, uh, oh, probably. No, it's not Jonah. It's uh, John. Peter's it, father's is name John? is John, I'm pretty sure. It's not Jonah. Isn't like, oh, it, may be, it may be different, actually. But the, the point is, his father's name is not Jonah. No, I don't but think it was. Jesus calls himself the... Uh, 
earlier he says uh, to the Pharisees, this is like, this is like, uh, no, that's, that's John and uh, James. Is it it James and John? Okay. James and John. Yeah. Sorry. James and John. Uh, Earlier, Jesus says to the Pharisees, no sign shall be given to this adulterous generation except for the sign of Jonah. This is like three layers deep, by the way, in scripture, but um, the sign of Jonah is Jesus's death and resurrection. He says, just as the as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three uh-huh. nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and then be raised again. So oh, Jesus is representative of Jonah. Just real quick, Go ahead. His father's name was Jonah, but this is the Bible we're talking about. It's not like that's insignificant still. His father's, his father's was name was Jonah? Jonah. Okay, yeah. according to what? Because I might I have just been... Googled it real quick. Okay, yeah. well, because I thought his name was John. I thought Peter's father's name wasn't Jonah. Uh, regard, it does make a difference. But, but typology still. Yeah, well, anyways. So he says, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It, it, Bar-Jonah, I'm pretty sure Jonah's not Peter's father's name, but Jesus references himself as Jonah. So Bar-Jonah be Simon, my son, basically. Bar-me. So later, you know, when now that Christ and Peter have a new relationship, basically, as Christ, Peter being a yeah, father vicar, and son relationship, right? There's a father son relationship. Peter being a son of Christ, hmm. uh, he doesn't have to pay tax or tribute because he's the Jesus son. is the king, sure, right? Because the king doesn't take toll or tribute from that. So actually, from this passage, we draw the principle that the church should not pay toll or tribute to the state. Hmm. Okay, wait a sec. So. Should I pay my taxes? You <laughs> should, but the church shouldn't. But are we not all the church, brother? I mean, well, the, church the ecclesial hierarchy. But the church doesn't I'm pay taxes. I'm Peter, Peter and the bishop should not. Yeah. But the church they doesn't be pay taxes. For, at least from in the taxes. United States, they don't pay taxes. Well, yeah. Okay, yes, because they're classified as a, as charity, a charity organization yeah. and, a, and a religious group. But in a true, like, in the medieval times when church and state, when it was just church and like state wasn't such a big deal, like Dr. Jones is. No, that makes uh, sense though, because they're the bishops are called the princes. They're After, princes of the church. Of the yeah. church and the church, obviously the king is Christ. So they're princes of the king. That's right. They're sons yes. of the king, right? Uh and and you know, uh yeah, and Christ treats him as, you know, his his uh part of his royal household, his sons. And so so the sons are free, however, not to give offense to them. Go and you know you'll find some some money and you can pay them. So there's kind of a duality here, right? Yeah. In principle, Peter should never have to pay taxes because he's working for the kingdom, right? And the, and the sons are free. However, if there's grave time where like you have to deal with the state somehow, Christ will provide as mm-hmm. long as you're faithful to Him. So Interesting. There, there's both and on that because it's it's not just the fact of like we'll just say you know give them the finger and and don't pay your taxes. It's in principle, you're totally in the right not to pay your taxes, but even if you have to, and you have to give tribute to the state for some reason, be faithful to me, and I'll still provide. Hmm. Like, I don't know. It's a really cool. Um, I mean, it's really hard to interpret. There's no other way to interpret that that type of passage. That that one's pretty. There's a lot of those passages. Have I told you about the the Good Samaritan? Oh parable? yeah, that's cool. That's worth saying on air. Okay, so that's Augustine, right? This is Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan. So Gabriel, if you could for us recount. Your what what you know of the good Samaritan? Tell us. There's a lot of holes. There's a lot of holes in my knowledge. Tell it to us. Uh, So there was a person who was walking on a road, and then a bunch of robbers came and beat him up and left him on the side of the road. And then a a series of people showed up, um, 
around the person who who's beat up on the road. One of them was a, a priest. Yes. The other was a Samaritan. And then the last was no, a... No, last was Samaritan. Last was a Samaritan. Who was the... It was a priest and another guy, right? Priest, a Levite. A Levite. And then a Samaritan. Yep. And then the priest and the Levite did nothing to help the guy, but the Samaritan did. And the Samaritan uh, took him to an inn. I believe he took him to an inn. Mm-hmm. And uh, told the innkeeper, help him in any way and I'll repay you. And then, um, yeah, that's the story, right? Basically. Uh, and there's, that was good. Good job, Gabe. <laughs> Remember <laughs> some of the, the scriptures? Someone's been catechized. Uh, someone's been catechized. Someone's right. Well, I mean, even in America, we have like good Samaritan laws, right? Most people read that story as do good for people. I mean, you know that's I mean? not not there. It's not not there, right? But there's there could be more to it. Okay, yeah. so first of all, we have a, the, the premise of the story is we have a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? And I've been to Jericho and I've also been to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you know, like Mount Zion, and there's all these Psalms about Mount Zion. Jerusalem is built on a hill, hill, like a city secured that's in the Psalms. City on a hill. Right? So it's a city on the hill, right? It's it's the city of God, it's a city on a hill. Now, what what is Jericho in the Bible? What was our sin, right? Yeah. So Jericho, what do they do to you know, the walls and stuff, and they like parade around, blow trumpets, right? The walls came tumbling it down. <laughs> they came a tumble in a down, right? So it was a city of sin, right? And also, I don't know if you know, Jericho is one of the lowest elevation places on the earth. Oh, actually. it is? Yeah, it's 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 up there. I can't remember if it's the lowest or it's it's a really low level elevation. Up hit me up. Hit me up, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> Jamie, pull up Jericho's Jamie, elevation. Jamie, pull up Jericho's elevation, please. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, Jericho is super low, right? So you have a man going from the city of God, Jerusalem, to going to the city of sin, low elevation, oh, man. Jericho. So Jericho is 864 feet below sea level. Hmm. There you go, dude. So you're going for from, you know, it's Mount Zion. It's not the oldest city on earth, but also the lowest one, according to Khan the Academy. The oldest city on earth. And I the lowest, no according to Khan Academy. Hmm. So. Thank yes, you, Khan. <laughs> Con so a man is going my, uh, science and math yeah high school <laughs> so ma- a man is going from jerusalem to jericho so there's an intention to go to the city of sin right there's an intention to leave Jer- uh, jerusalem to jericho so he's going down the road and then he falls among robbers who and there's three verbs there the first thing is they they strip him they beat him and then they leave him half dead there's three things that happen. Strip him, beat him, leave him half dead. I don't worry about that. Strip him, beat him, leave him half dead. And as he's half dead, he's, you know, on the side of the road. And a priest comes. And it's not specified what religion this priest is. It just says a priest, which would be a little weird, right? But it's just a priest. Could be of any religion. Basically. I mean, the fact that they designate Levite for the next one, doesn't that kind of imply that this wasn't a Jewish priest? Correct. That's what it seems to be. Because, because if they, if they if would have just specify said, Levite yeah. later, you'd think that if the first one was also a Levite, you know. Right. They don't yeah. specify. So it could be, it's most likely a pagan priest or mm-hmm. a Gentile, right? So a priest comes by, sees the man, sees where the man's is. So there's a verb, sees the man, but can't help him. And so he continues to walk. A Levite comes and does the exact same thing. Sees the man, can't help him, leaves. Then the Samaritan comes, and there's three verbs again. The Samaritan saw where he was, had compassion on him, and came to where he was. Hmm. So there's three verbs. There's there's first the seeing, there's the having compassion, and then came to where he was. Um, actually, I think I got that mixed up. Have compassion's last. So saw him, came to where he was, and had compassion on him. Comes to where he is, 
And then he binds his wounds with band-aids and all these other stuff. No, he binds his wounds with really weirdly wine and oil. Yes. Which that would be like pouring Lagavulin on somebody. <laughs> Can you imagine? You know, I mean, to be fair, alcohol is a disinfectant. That's true. Well, they, I mean, like, they didn't know like oil they didn't, and stuff. They didn't know wine. about bacteria. I don't. Well, know I mean, what I, I know oil was, was uh, a sign of like health, right? Wasn't oil a sign of health? Uh, yeah, oil has a lot of symbols. It's used religiously. It's used um for a lot of things, anointings, whatever. But um. Yeah, so you have oil and wine, which is very specific. He binds the wounds. He puts the man on his own animal, brings him to the inn, and then tells the innkeeper, uh, keep him, and gives him two drachma, and ke- says, keep him whatever you pay, or whatever he costs you know, to keep keep him here. I'll cover. I'll cover it when I come back. Yeah. So there's a, a notion he's going to come back. Now, okay, this is Augustine's interpretation of this. A man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That is... Uh, the man is representative of Adam and humanity who intend to sin through original sin. They're going from the city of God to the city of sin. What happens is they fall among robbers, the devil and his demons, and they they feel the effects of sin. The effects of sin are being stripped. So man is stripped of his original holiness. He's beaten down by concupiscence, which are the evil desires. So man now has a desire for sin, whereas before he didn't have a desire for sin. And he's left half dead. Right, so mankind no longer has heaven and paradise open to them. They're going to die. Hmm. We're in a kind of state of half death, anyways, because we have our immortal souls and we have these mortal bodies, right, that are going to die. So what happens is natural religion, mankind wants to make sacrifices. Think about like pagan Roman religion, where they would offer sacrifices. It doesn't do anything because man is still completely taken down by sin and original sin. They can't redeem man. And then you have the Levite who has the law. He knows what's true, but he can't save man, right? Like St. Paul talks about that the law brings sin into the world because the law can't actually heal anyone. It only tells you that you're screwed up. But then the Samaritan comes. Now, do do you know anything about the the Samaritan people? Yeah, the Samaritan people were kind of inbred people, right? Because they they were... um, Well, not inbred, but mixed. They were mixed between the the Jews and who are the other people? It was Northern Kingdom, right? Pagan Gentiles. Because Judah was to the south, and the Samaritans were between. Which tribe was it? One of the tribes to the north. And yeah, Gentiles. a lot of the northern tribes. So uh, when the Babylonians came, uh, no, sorry, when the Assyrians came originally, when the Assyrians came, and this was Jonah's whole story was he was sent to Assyria before the Assyrians conquered. Israel. Before, yeah, well, the Assyrians were terrible. They were super vicious. They right? were so vicious. So the yeah. Assyrians deport the northern Israelites, but they get stopped before they get to Judah. Uh, Later, the Babylonians take 70 years later with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the one who proclaims like, you know, uh, Babylonians are going to come and get you. But the Assyrians destroyed and deported the northern tribes. Well, the remnants of those tribes settled in Samaria. Samaria didn't worship in Jerusalem because they had a civil war. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. So if you remember in John 4 with the lady at the well, Mm -hmm. She says, on this mountain, we worship. And on that mountain, we, you know, you guys worship. And then Jesus says, salvation's from the Jews, which is like, yeah, you're, you messed up. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so the Samaritans are half the people of God because they're part of Israel and they're half in the world, right? So Augustine says the Samaritan represents Christ because Christ has full humanity, which is sinful. And he's taken on yeah. sinful flesh. 
but he's fully God. So, like so a, he like surpasses the analogy. A type of the hypostatic union right there. Yeah, the Samaritan, that's exactly right. The Samaritan is a type of the hypostatic union where you have God and man being united. You have the evil, you know, humanity being united to the perfect God, united in the person of Christ. And, uh, the, the, and then there's three verbs, remember. He saw him, he came to where he was, and he had a compassion on him. So, and the word for compassion is is uh, is really a really fantastic word in Greek. Um, but he saw him, right? So there's this notion of like, like think back in Genesis where where you know God says, "Where are you?" And then man finally reveals himself, and God describes to man what are the effects of original sin. There's an element of like God didn't just be like, "Well, you done, you know, effed up. That's it. You done messed up. You done messed a- up." A dumb. Exactly. He saw where he was. He came to where he was. Now, that's a statement about the incarnation. Came to where he was. Like, God couldn't come to where we are without that incarnational aspect. Hmm. So, God saw that. He became incarnate and then had compassion. And, and the compassion, I think, is the Paschal mystery. So, once that ac- that is accomplished, then, and this is all according to Augustine's interpretation. I didn't come up with this. Um, then, he can, then he pours wine and oil. Right, and oil is used in baptism, and in confirmation, confirmation. Yep. and wine, of course, is pointing to the Eucharist, which unites us to the body of Christ, or just the blood, or just the man, blood by yeah. which man is saved, and that blood is the same one we receive in the Eucharist. So it's, yes. yeah, it's a double yes. type, yeah. And uh, and then he puts him on his own beast and he takes him to the inn. Now, what is the inn? Hmm, I don't know. My first impression might be heaven, or, or the church. The church, yeah. Augustine says the church, mm-hmm. right? Because the man is healed, but he's not perfectly better yet. Otherwise, he'd be out of the inn. So he goes to the inn, and and the Samaritan gives two drachma. Augustine interprets that as the Eucharist and confession, which are the sacraments you continue to receive once you're in the inn, right? So, and he says... Uh, you know, take care of him until I come back. So there's a notion of like, it's, it's not just like take care of him, see you later, right? It's take care of him until I come back. So there's a notion of he's coming back to get the guy. Yeah, well, when you say he, it's... It's Christ. It's Christ, yeah. yeah. Christ is a Samaritan. Yeah. Until he comes back is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah, take care of him. And the innkeeper is the apostles, their successors, the bishops and priests, the hierarchs. Those are the innkeepers. The ones who give the sacraments to continually priests. heal the man who's Who Christ wounded, who's... enabled to do it, which is the gift exactly. of, of the coins. Hmm. The gift of the coins and whoever. And then, okay, this whole parable is set up by someone asking Christ, um, someone asked Christ, you know, what must I be, do to be saved? And he says, you know the commandments. Um, obey your mother and father, love God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man trying to justify himself says, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story. So at the end of this story, he says, who proved, who showed mercy on the man? Yeah, well, obviously the Samaritan. And this, he says the Samaritan showed mercy. And then he says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So if Augustine's interpretation is correct, which by the way, there's too many things that are pretty conveniently put in there for me to not oh, yeah. think this is just an overreach, whatever. Jesus is literally telling this guy, who's my neighbor? All right, well, you effed up humanity. You screwed this up so bad. I had to become incarnate. I saved you from your sins. 
showed mercy on you, gave you the church. And who showed mercy on humanity? Oh, I did. Okay. So who's your neighbor? Everyone's your neighbor. There literally is no one excluded from the neighbor clause at this point in time, right? Because, you know, and and St. Paul talks about this, like the fact that, well, I mean, even you look John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world, he sent his only son, right? There's there's a, the fact that God decided all of humanity was worth saving should be proof enough that there's no one excluded from the neighbor clause of love your neighbor. Hmm. And, um, and, uh, well, I mean, if and you're going to tie this into the church, there's the great commission too. Yeah. The great go make disciples, go, go, go make disciples of all nations. All nations. Yeah. So if that's the church and the church is like Augustine interprets the inn and the good Samaritan parable, everyone belongs there. That's right. Yeah. You're there. And it's, <laughs> I just love too that like Christ is telling a story about himself <laughs> to demonstrate that to this person, you know? The it's one, just so cool. I mean, it's he's, a nice he can break from the farming parables. Yeah. I guess all meme, it was like, <laughs> go plant a mustard seed. It's like a farm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, we know. The Christ. mustard seed one's really cool too because yeah. uh, the birds come and rest in its branches and the birds are meant to be the nations, right? Uh, a lot of nations actually have birds as being one of their, like, you know, their national animals or whatever. Um, or they, like, like Roma was the eagle. Right. Um, so having all the birds rest in its branches is an image of the church, right? Because the church doesn't replace the birds. She didn't become a bird herself. The birds rest in the branches. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something out there or whatever? <laughs> no, no just something's creaking. Yeah, oh, something's creaking. House is set. That's probably, yeah, that's, that's the window. Yeah. Don't worry about that. We got, a, we got a rainy night here in Steubenville tonight, but it's set up a good pos- podcasting element. Um, Sorry to interrupt. No, no, it's fine. Uh, yeah, no, the parables are. Are there any other parables that you guys are? I mean, I've been. I think we were talking about this. Never got into it. I'm interested in an interpretation of the uh, lamp, the lamps, and the bridesmaids. But I haven't read any of the like patristic. Yeah, I don't know much on about that, that one actually. Yeah. yeah, that they've trimmed their lights. They go out to meet the bridegroom. Yes, the ones who have prepared and have oil in their lamps meet the bridegroom, and the ones who. The one I've seen the patristic yeah. stuff is just the ones that have uh, faith and works, mm-hmm. so that the 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 lantern allows you. Let's say the uh, it gives you, uh, you know, if you're baptized and you have faith, but you have to illuminate that light with good works. Otherwise, it doesn't it doesn't basically work out. I wonder just you know offhand whether it was like grace or something was the oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but obviously I haven't done the deep dive into. That was it. the only patristic interpretation I saw of that one. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting, I, and you know, if you look in the Old Testament in terms of parables, right? Nathan is the the one in the Old Testament that's like the really famous example when he's talking to um, David about Bathsheba, and um, they're just really cool because at the same time, so the reason why Jesus shifts to parables is not because he thinks they're just nice stories, but literally because he wants to conceal the truth from people who can't handle it. Basically, you know, there's. A, there's this thing today that we think everything should just be out in the open. I think one of the things we've lost in Christianity is the need to hide things. You a Gnostic, bro? I mean, no, I'm yeah, fan of forbidden but, books. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something there's something really cool about the fact of you don't just show your cards all at once. Like there's, you know, uh there's things to be discovered in Christianity rather than just uh I mean, there's a principle, do not throw your pearls before swine. Do not throw um, I mean, Jesus says to the Canaanite women yeah. that, you know, you shouldn't throw the bread from the children's table to the dogs, right? It's like, damn, she just, he just called her a, a bitch, but, <laughs> but, uh, she, she responds 
with like um with faith she says even the dogs eat from the scraps on the master's table like she understands as a canaanite she's in a position where um according to the jews she's totally uh totally foreign and 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 a dog and not only that she's a canaanite yeah who uh bear the uh mark of cain and they're uh i mean if you go from the old testament they're kind of a portrayed as really debaucherous people exactly right now in christ obviously all people are now uh open to grace which is no and she's rewarded for her faith yeah she's rewarded for her faith her i think she had her daughter needed to be healed or something like that right i don't remember off the top of my head the gospels have just so much richness to it um there's yeah, and the parables are meant not to just be nice stories, but they're meant to actually conceal the truth of things away from uh, people who don't need to know it, right? Jesus switches to parables when the Pharisees start challenging him because the Pharisees want to basically destroy him the whole time. They're the ones who accuse him before Pilate. They're the ones who um, you know, are antagonistic to him the entire time. And, uh, and after that... Well, they call him the son of Satan, which is not really a good move. But uh, you remember this, John? So when the Pharisees call Jesus the son of Satan or possessed by Satan himself? I know they accuse him of that uh, at his trial. <laughs> That's kind of a harsh charge, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a little. So He, he I casts mean, out demons with the power of demons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so after you know Jesus has basically trolled them for like the last two chapters, right? So they, they, prick, they pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees come by like, you're doing what's unlawful. And Jesus says, did you not read what David did uh, when he was hungry, how he went into the priest's table and took some showbread? And the priest had like showbread where um, it's part of the rituals. Only priests are supposed to eat it. And so David went in there. And then he says, and did you know that something greater than David is here? And then he says, and do you not know that the priest on the Sabbath work in the temple, and yet they are blameless, and something greater than the temple is here. And then he says, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, to our Gentile ears, none of this seems particularly striking, but Jesus just said he's greater than David, who's the, what the greatest king What he's doing is more ever. important than the temple, yeah. or greater than the temple. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like when like Trump's like, I'm greater than Abe Lincoln and George, that'd be like Trump saying, I'm greater than Abe Lincoln, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, every founding father, I'm greater than them. So that's the first statement that Jesus says, he's greater than David. David was like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, like all combined into one. Like the great he's, king he's and, the superstar. The great king and religious reformer of the Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, that's David, man. So he just starts off, I'm greater than David. And then he says, you, you know how the priests do their thing in the temple? I'm greater than the temple. Now, what is the temple to the Jews? That's literally the house of God. That's where God meets man. That's where God lives. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's where the tabernacle is. You know yeah. something cool too? Okay, so you know, um, you remember Zechariah in beginning of Luke. Zechariah, who's the husband of Elizabeth. He's one of the priests in the temple. And... Uh, he has his occasion where he gets to go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice. It's a once-in-a-lifetime event. Actually, they draw lots. They, they like draw sticks to see who gets to do it. And what they do when you go into the Holy of Holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where the uh, Moses' staff and the original Torah was. Like It was the Holy of Holies. It was the place, right? <laughs> it was literally so holy, they would tie a, a, a rope around your ankle. Just in case you went in there and died, they could pull you out. 
<laughs> like holy, holy. just that like was pull only, you out. Yeah. only the high priest right only only the high priest and uh, well, only certain priests yes. on certain okay. parts of the year and they would draw lots for that uh yeah and and they would go in there so zechariah goes in there and then he has his vision with the angel gabriel that he's going to have john the baptist right so this was a really big deal right and then jesus just flat out says i'm better than the temple which is like what that you're better than the temple what are you talking about and then he just wraps up the saying by saying the son of man is lord of the sabbath and he's called himself son of man up to this point so he just called himself god which I don't. I don't know. People just seem to miss this stuff. They just think that like Jesus said some nice sayings. No, he. Except, I mean, if you want any more evidence of Christ, almost like explicitly claiming to be God, when he says, "I am," are you the son of? Or was it? Don't they yeah. say like, "Are you the son of God?" He says, "I am." Yeah, and anyone. Gospel. Anyone who's read Exodus knows the baggage in that state statement. Yeah, exactly. It, it's. And this is in Matthew twelve. So he's trolled them all this time, and then, um, and then we get to. They they and then the Pharisees, right, who he he's trolled he's trolled for like the last two chapters after saying all this stuff. Uh he casts out demons from this mute, deaf de- demoniac. And this is in Matthew's gospel. And it's pretty telling, right? He's a actually he's a dumb, mute, deaf demoniac. Right? And he cast out demons from this man. Can't think of anything worse yeah, I know. this guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not a very good situation. Dumb, mute, and deaf. He casts out the demons. And then the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. Okay, now on the like the Rick, the Richter scale of getting things wrong, um, if Christ is a prophet or something like that, and he's not the Son of God, but he's just making stuff up. Like, think about all the bad things you can say about him. Oh, well, he's he's making stuff up. He's an evil guy. He's whatever else. Now, Christ actually is the Son of God. He's God incarnate. Now, what's the worst thing you could possibly accuse God incarnate of being? Well, just a bad guy, kind of a bad guy, a really bad guy. He lies a lot. No, you you literally don't think he's God incarnate. You think he's Satan incarnate. Yeah. They, <laughs> There's they, literally nothing worse you can do. I mean, do. they didn't have the concept of the Antichrist yet, but they're basically... Yeah, they're calling Christ Antichrist. Yeah. And then this is where Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin, that which is basically the when unpardonable sin. Good, are you the good king of the evil Jews? And just going good. back to my quote, it was, are you the king of the Jews? I am. Okay, yeah. Just to clarify. In Mark's gospel. Yes. Matthew's gospel is, uh, you have said so. Okay, Luke as well. Got it, got it. Um, So the unpardonable sin. Yeah, the unpardonable sin is, yeah, it's it's, uh, blaspheming the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is basically... Uh, if the Holy Spirit is like the works, right? It's the the love. It's the the you know the the what you can see in this way, like the the good deeds. And then yeah, it's calling good evil and evil good. Like he says, every sin will be forgiven against the Son of Man, but he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So the idea is like, look, if you get Jesus wrong, like Paul did. Remember, Paul accused Jesus of being, uh, you know, a, a false prophet and all this stuff, and he was persecuting him everywhere. Now. That was forgiven Paul. Now, if Paul had basically said all the good deeds that Christians do are actually evil deeds, you're at it. It's unpardonable in the sense that you're at a point that's so far gone that it's almost impossible to get you out of it because you've you've completely inverted the scales. I've heard a similar interpretation that where blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would result in you being incapable of receiving graces Hmm. because the Holy Spirit is that which you know brings the graces to us. So. Right. If you blaspheme against it and you say like uh, it would entail a total rejection of sanctifying grace. 
that's where like the Pharisees are at, man. They're they're like, we want this Jesus guy dead. It doesn't matter what he's he's getting. We're getting him out of here. And then he says the unpardonable sin. And then after that, the whole strategy of Jesus after that is parables, because no longer is he going to say things straight with the Pharisees around. So, and then the apostles come to him and they're like, what the heck? Like, why are you doing this parable stuff? And Jesus is like, to you, it has been revealed to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been revealed, right? And the crowds are there. So that's why he talks in parables. So what you have to do, so now your hermeneutic, when you approach parables, shouldn't just be, wow, nice stories at face value. It should be like, there's some hidden wisdom here and I have to go find it. Look at the symbolism and all that. Look at the symbolism. What does it Look mean at the to Old be Testament. going from Jerusalem to Samaria? What are What's the Samaritan? And there's no one better to help you figure that out than, than the, the patristics and then yeah. the fathers, because the fathers of the church thought about this stuff and they actually understood it. They actually read Greek, so they knew like the references. One of the things with the Samaritan thing that really helped me was because I know just a very basic, minimal, stupid Greek, because I'm really bad at it. I've <laughs> yeah, taken I tried getting years. your help on that phrase earlier. It was not good. <laughs> I am pretty bad at Greek. But like getting to look at the, the verbs in the Samaritan parable, I'm like, okay, there's three verbs. All right, what are these three verbs? Going through that, there's three verbs. The fathers actually knew Greek, like the back of their hand. Me, I don't. Not like the back of my hand. I have Biblehub.com has fantastic Greek interlinear, where you can actually look up all the words. And you can see how many times words occur throughout. It's fantastic. If you guys actually want to look into this stuff. But um, yeah, BibleHub.com is fantastic. Their Greek interlinear is just unbelievable. Somebody had to go through and just like put all the words, all the different phrases, everything, had to do it by hand. People are pretty serious about this stuff. Yeah, people Um, care about their religion. Go figure. Yeah, who go figure? Who would have thought? Um, Yeah, so people and here's maybe we can talk about this like the fact that we've gotten to a point now where you know scripture can't be read in any other way but just being like you know silly old historical ahistorical you know narratives about and it's trying to convince you of some religious doctrine it's frustrating it's frustrating when people hold that view uh i actually i know many people who see the bible as just some silly old book that was written by uh cracked you know men who had no grasp of what was actually happening during the time. And it's frustrating to talk to those people. But I think it's important to remember that when the uh, the apostles were going out and preaching the gospel to the people around them, they would preach the gospel, and if the people didn't accept it, they would leave. Uh, was it shake the dust off your sandals and move on? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so you know, it's not it's not for everyone to be convinced of the true religion. You're supposed to present it to them. And if they don't accept it, get out of there. Go to the next town. And uh, that's what I've done with some of my friends. Like if they are bashing my religion, which which has happened in front of me, then I'll tell yeah. them what, what's true and then I'll leave. And I don't think that means give up on people by any means. But if they're not receptive of it, if they're not going to have a good faith conversation about it, it's fruitless. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fruitless. And you can have like, and man, that's a really interesting point about friendships too. Cause I've had that there's like, it's, it'll, it can only go so far friendship wise in some ways. Like we here at Franciscan, you know, we're really blessed that, you know, everyone's Catholic. We kind of share the same worldview. And so, you know, we can, you can be friends with a lot of people and it can really end up being pretty deep friendships. But like when people really don't share the worldview and they don't share and and look, it's not that I can't like work with people who don't who don't are Catholic and don't agree with me on everything or whatever. Obviously, we we don't agree with on everything, even as Catholics, right? But like sharing the essentials is such a really wonderful thing for friendships. 
and it makes it so much easier. Um, you know, if somebody has so many, you know, messed up ideas about reality in the world and how things go and have different moral issues, whatever they have different moral, like you can be friends, you can be friends in the workplace, you can be friends at school or whatever, but there's always kind of that barrier. And I'm not saying your Catholic friends are just make it perfect because there's always problems there, but it's, it's a different feel. Maybe I could just say it, put it that way. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe I have too radical a view on this, but when a person doesn't share a common belief in God with me, I find it hard to, to talk to them about anything. And so usually I'll try and distance myself from that person. Maybe that's too radical of you, but that's happening. In terms of friendships. Now, if you're like working with somebody or they're sure, in a class sure, or something. Sure. Yeah. But be yeah, in terms of stuff, friendships. Yeah. Ter- yeah. If someone invites me over, I don't know. There's, I've had too many dumb conversations with people about like all these really stupid ideas. I actually have a friend of mine named Garrett um, who believes in all this yoga nonsense <laughs> and is it's it, just straight it, up nonsense is he hindu or is it like no he's he's caucasian grew up in san diego he has this weird belief in in yoga and he's like yeah you know we're all kind of gods in our own way and then i'll have to <laughs> i'll have to talk to him about like no there's no way we can all be gods you know and and, and i bet you had to distance myself from him because he'll, he'll constantly bring it up to me and and uh you know i've told him multiple times about what the truth is and he just won't accept it. So I'll just have to say, well, okay, whatever, you know, kick the dust off my sandals and uh, move Yoga, on. Yoga, huh? It's, it's the dumbest thing. I, I, I don't even, I, I don't even want to try to describe it because we're all gods. Yeah. That's like the, that's like the premise is we're all gods. And there's so like you need to lead them to Athanasius. Athanasius yeah, so, has some uh, big statements Deification. Deification. We, we, with communion and God in heaven, we are deified in a sense. We don't become gods, but we become one with God. I mean, the son of God became a son of man so that the sons of men might become sons sons of of God. God. Yes. Tell him that. Maybe that'll uh, (laughs) get him out of his funk. Plant that. Plant that seed. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty crazy dude. The Greek fathers were just so dank. I mean, the son, the son of God became a son of man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. Like this is just such a, such an amazing way to put it that that's the reason why he became a son of man because that's what we were meant for originally become sons of God, sons of God, like the crackpot, you know, Joseph Smith stuff about like you all be, you, you get your own universe and stuff and you get your own planet. Like I think the St. Paul saying, remember when St. Paul says like, it is not even entered the mind of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. Like that should be the litmus test for any of those crackpot religious theories. Whenever they start giving you the details, you know, like, oh, 72 virgins, Muhammad says, you know, or like you're going to have like some planet or something like that. It's like, that's going to be lame compared to eternity when you think about it, right? That's going to be immensely lame. And whenever there's a promise of an basically a terrestrial paradise Doesn't with quantifiable sort of, yeah. enjoyments, already I think you've admitted the fact that human desires can be quantifiable. It, it, it implies filled. sort of a passability too. Like you'll have these desires still. It's not ultimate fulfillment if I still have the desire to populate a planet with my... <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird, man. Yeah, Even talking is. about it, you're just I mean, like, maybe you don't have desire. Maybe sense. you're fully fulfilled and you just do it because you want to create. I don't know. Because you're because <laughs> you're a god at that point. I don't know. I'm not a Mormon uh, uh theologian, but you're not? Oh frick. Dude. Yeah, I mean, sorry. I thought we were having a Mormon theologian said, on tonight. Uh, last podcast I was on, I got in by pretending to be Bishop Barron, now I'm pretending to be the prophet. <laughs> I mean <laughs> you need to stop coming in on false pretenses. Oh geez. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we scared all the Mormons away with this alcohol, so. Actually, uh, yeah. 
And there are jokes about Mormons and alcohol. Yeah. There's a lot. Okay, so the one I heard was actually told to me by a Mormon, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say the joke. You're allowed as a Mormon theologian, so go ahead. No. <laughs> I don't remember the joke well enough to deliver it well. Uh, so. Neither do Mormons when they drink. Oh! oh! oh I, got, I got some friends who are Mormons. <laughs> don't even drink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're very, uh, we bash people on this podcast, uh, Muslims there's pretty, including. There's a pretty big Mormons, Mormon presence in my area so i have some friends who are mormon jacob so. Imam wants to come on the podcast at some point hopefully oh, before, i'm hoping to have him to on yeah. him up he said he, he wants to come to on this is, uh, is a friend of ours here and he's uh he's uh gonna be studying in oxford he is i think but he has, uh he's but, a yeah. convert from from islam actually Jacob's having some trouble with his mic here dude i know i don't know how to hold a mic he's he's pushing it to the moon but jacob Imam, he's a convert from islam actually which is uh Pretty interesting, and he he said uh, when Doctor Plato was on the podcast. By the way, if you guys haven't heard the Doctor Plato podcast, it's right under this one. He said when Doctor Plato was on the podcast, he should call in as uh, like a Muslim commentator guy and be like, "I am sorry, but uh, I do not like what Plato is saying." <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, we hope to have him on the podcast. Really smart guy. The stuff they're doing over at New Polity with with Doctor Jones is really interesting stuff I don't yeah know definitely seen i've seen a lot of their doing. videos yeah uh, uh, but yeah a lot about conforming you know the bringing kind of a revolution in the culture back to the yeah culture. they're bringing they're bringing forth this really crazy idea which is well the three doctrines that have been well the three ideologies that have been you know presented in our day which are communism fascism and liberalism there's an alternative to those three and liberalism is kind of one out. Well, let me speak specifically, not with Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones is more concerned with like um, theology stuff, but uh, Plato and his brother have been talking about Catholic distributism. They've been talking about it um, uh, kind of in light of Chesterton. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting. They've, they've provided this alternative view to the three ideologies, which are fascism, uh, communism, and liberalism. And liberalism is kind of won out, but they, they discuss kind of the contradictions within liberalism, which is, you know, um, you know, the, the, uh, ability to make money and to have, you know, your own possessions, but those possessions, but, but the majority of capital is, is, uh, given to a very small amount of people within the society. That's just one contradiction. There's a whole list of them, but yeah, they've talked about this alternative view. And it's uh, super, super insightful. They have a lot of insightful stuff. Like, it's okay. Uh, Dr. Jones's thesis was on uh, church before church and state, the society, uh, medieval society under Pius. Jeez, I messed it up really bad. Under Louis the Ninth, uh, Louis the Ninth's France, and he basically argues that our modern notion of state, as we know it today, this idea that like. You have this governmental structure, and then the church is something that exists within it. That didn't exist in the Louis the Ninth's France. Like he was the king, but he was a member of the church, and the church was the entire body of Christ throughout the the region he was in control of. They didn't have this notion of state like we have it, right? Where uh, it's the government, and everyone just like participates in government. It was like the king, but then everyone was part of the church. You were part of Christendom, Christ's kingdom over Europe. Right, and so these modern notions of state, when we look back on oh, the dark ages yeah. and all that stuff, we we think of sovereigns and uh, Thomas Hobbes stuff and um, and power power games, and they didn't think of themselves as that. That's a modern reading back into history, right? And it's a difficult thing to get away from, right? Because you kind of you can't help but read history in light of your modern circumstances, 
it's a hard thing to do to really delve into it. And I think Jones does a really good job of putting you back in their in right. their yeah. mindset, which is yeah. hard to do, really hard to do, right? I mean, Gibbons was the one who classified the entire Middle Ages as Dark Ages. I mean, if that's not reading, you know, your history into the past, right? Because it's you're you're basically saying we're the enlightened by age. Ca- by calling your isn't the Enlightenment one of the first like self named or was that the Renaissance? I can't remember. Oh yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. Enlightenment. But, they definitely named themselves the yeah, Enlightenment. If you that's know. true, then to call yourself the Enlightenment and then to call your your previous generation the, the Dark Ages. I mean, you're wearing your bias, biases on your sleeve. There. <laughs> Very much. Yeah, so. definitely. You called the whole medieval period Dark Ages, and that persists. And that's like from what three hundred to yeah. thirteen hundred. Yes, that's a lot. People still I had, uh, think I had that. a European history class in in high school, and they were calling the middle the Middle Ages the Dark Ages. And and of course the whole uh, the whole discussion of the Catholic Church during that time was that it was a tyrannical um, you know theocracy that was holding back the progress of science and that was the whole that was the whole you know that was the very short even when we mentioned the church that was that was what it was um, conceptualized as it was never conceptualized as this. Uh, you know, as the uniter of all nations under this Catholic society, and we all had a moral, um, a very more uh, similar morality that helped you know unite Europe. It was never that was never that. It was all that the Catholic Church held back progress, and that's that. And we should all look at that time period where the Catholic Church, you know, had influence over the over over the um, you know, different states, um, as tyrannical. Yeah, totally ahistorical, totally reading back into it. It's also kind of fun, just personally, when you look at what people say about what they don't like about the Middle Ages and when it's like, that was technically a Renaissance thing. Oh, really? No, it's just fun. (laughs) Like Galileo and stuff was like, well, that was Renaissance. Renaissance. (laughs) I mean, we're kind of getting out of that at that point. Yeah, I mean, like high Middle Ages. And and you realize how people just don't know any of that period of history. It's really, you know... It's Catholic historians. There's other people who are actually interested in that type of history. And, and if you're like, why would you be if you're you're totally? Yeah, it's not taught. In, in it's not taught in public schools. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, didn't you tell me your European history class started in the Renaissance? It was on the first day of class too. That that the teacher basically said, "Well, we're not going to cover you know the the, the uh, Middle Ages because you know all that is you know nonsense, fuddy duddy, you know." messed up with Catholicism. We're going to start at the, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, and we're going to, you know, we're going to go from there. Start when they start jettisoning, you know, Christianity yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and then it, it talked about, we had a whole, like, on, literally on the first week of school, we talked about humanism. We didn't talk about, we didn't talk about the Catholic Church. We talked about humanism. It was, it was so mind-boggling to me. That's why I had to leave the school, but... Dude, education, I mean, so... I, I think we take for granted the fact that we get such an, a good education here. I, I don't, uh, I really think we do take that for granted because there is so much garbage taught everywhere else. And it's the weird thing about a classroom where everyone else is kind of ignorant in the classroom when a teacher can just spout nonsense unchallenged. Like, have you ever been in a classroom where stuff was just getting taught that you're just like, this is absolutely nuts? I mean, I was fortunate enough that the public schools I went to didn't have much of that at all that I remember. It was pretty like I didn't have people like I mean, obviously not everyone was Catholic, but yeah. There wasn't like a a whole unit on why the Crusades and the Inquisitions were evil and why the Dark Ages were dark or anything like that. 
Yeah, I guess it's kind of unique to California then because that's exactly <laughs> what was taught in, in oh, yeah. school is that, you know, there was, you could buy your way into heaven during the Middle Ages. I mean, you like, could, like you could, that type of, that lie has been so like all over the place all the time. Here, John, why don't you help him out? Yeah. It's just a little twist thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I heard some of that stuff, but I don't remember it being like a major part of my education. It was, it was, it was taught often in school and also in my economics class too. We were taught that uh, the best form of uh, the, the best form of economics was um, communism, essentially. <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah, commies, man. Welcome to California, dude. Commies are a dime a dozen, uh, and it's all over the universities too. The universities are just full of communist ideology, communist propaganda. Like, I mean, the whole BLM stuff is all communism as well. How is it communism, though? They've professedly said we want. The way to solve institutional racism was we need a communist revolution in the United States because systemic racism needs a governing body basically to overturn it, to give reverse prejudice to uh, black lives, to make reparations. Isn't it kind of a unique twist and then sort of class differentiation? It's uh, like either racial group or, you know... It's it's not purely class based like you'd expect from classic Marxism. It's, There's a lot of race stuff in yeah. it. It's more race stuff than I think Marx or regular communism would have, right? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely more like inverse. So yeah, one of the things is oppressed reparations. Gr- oppressed groups. I think that's what yeah it's yeah yeah. So so yeah, obviously a lot of Marx has oppressed groups as being part of it. Reparations is one thing that Marx also has. So they use that same ideology. So it's the idea that these people have taken all your money so you can, you know, take all their money from them. Yeah, but are you talking about are you talking about so, so black slaves been- in America and how they're they're requesting, you know, okay, because we were slaves for so long, we demand uh, you know, because basically what you did is you held back us progressing in society when you had us as slaves. Now we demand that you help us get forward in society by paying us some sort of reparations for our... Yeah, that's the argument. Which I think is kind of a foolish argument. It's just reverse racism. It's it's using racism to right the wrongs of racism, which already is just a bad idea. And also, and then you, there's no way to actually ascribe any guilt and this is the same thing. That's the reason why it's a class guilt. Rather than a class guilt, it's a race guilt, right? So the class guilt of the communist is these people who are have all this money are the bourgeois. They're the the ones who actually you know have have profited from society from the systemically evil system, right? That communism is going to right the wrong. And so in the same way, BLM and whatever they think, okay, well, white people have systemically profited, so we're just going to completely as one group demand reparations. Okay, so so so, so uh cuz I'm not too educated in all this stuff, but let me give you kind of my take and you you poke holes at it. With the whole Black Lives Matter thing that's happening right now, I feel like it's it's a it's trying to make up for from the African American community's own shortcomings within society. Uh, their own shortcomings is trying to say, okay, because we have these shortcomings, we're going to try and pin it on something in order for us to get to to um, to get back to even, maybe to get back to even economically, uh, in other and in other ways. But by pinning their own shortcomings, they're they're trying to say it's racism, it's the white people who are oppressing the black people, um, and so what they do is they say because because it's that. Um, I'm going to try and, and get an advantage from saying it's that 
instead of recognizing their own shortcomings and trying to work harder to get back to you to um, you know to to economic advantages does that make sense yeah no it's the same thing that happened with the communists in in russia is, is uh they convinced all these people of this reality they said everyone's against you these evils we see in this system this capitalism system or whatever system is um disproportionately against you and so you have to revolt you have to win the fight you have to beat everyone else and take the money and then we'll redistribute it later on once the bourgeois have been conquered and then we'll redistribute it and we'll have a communist utopia so in the same way you know the solution is what well the dispossession of the white people and the redistribution of their money and their property and whatever to the dis uh disenfranchised African-American race as if, you know, like no African-Americans have done anything in the country, right? It's also a presumption. And then you should see how this works both ways, right? Because it's once again, ascribing guilt to an entire class of people of just white people, but it's also ascribing to black people. Like you haven't done anything that's gotten you out of your situation, right? So the same, it's, it's, it's pretty racist against black people when you actually think about it, because it's, it's saying to them, even if you worked your hardest, you'd still never make it anywhere. So do you think they have... Now, they a, would ascribe that to like white privilege or whatever, but knowing yeah. that like there are there are ways in which to, uh, as an individual, move higher in that system. Yeah. And I think we do need to recognize there are some disadvantages. Lower income neighborhoods, I think, tend to be disproportionately minority and underfunded. So I think... It's not enough to say, okay, we're fine. We can just pull yourself yeah. up by your bootstraps. There are things we can do to help, I think. Like maybe better fun. I mean, this is pretty basic and I'm not educated enough to really speak, but like funding inner city schools or whatever. Okay. So how the, about affirmative are, action? Let's take let's um, take that. Well, yeah. Affirmative action is, is racist to its uh, core. I just tend, I don't like it conceptually as much, but basically my only point is that we, I don't think it's enough to say we're good now. Let's just roll with it. There are still things we can do to heal the wounds of racism in our country. No, yeah, but, I, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I think we, and, and Trump has done that. Black unemployment was at its lowest before all these things. Um, and I think people recognize like uh, cities were getting cleaned up until BLM stuff was starting to, 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 to kill them off again and uh, or to make the, the streets a lot worse. Um. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, affirmative action, right? So it's it's much easier for and, and there was just a lawsuit against Yale actually pretty recently. Uh Asian guy suing Yale that a, I think I heard stuff about it, like Asian Americans or Asian people in general being hurt by affirmative action because totally. they tend to have really high test scores and stuff, but there's like But they're Asian yeah, and not they're, black. They're not getting or as, Native American. as much as more like less privileged groups. Yeah, and I think that's I think that can be attributed to this whole notion that diversity is is a great thing and that diversity is always good and that everything should be diverse. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, you have to demonstrate first that diversity is good for for some end and you can't demonstrate that. Having like-minded people around you can sometimes be better than having super diverse groups of people. I think there is some value to diversity in that you get different approaches to problems. Just like I'm thinking like think of like a think tank or something. I recognize my own limits and that my experiences are different and I have different knowledge. So having a diverse group of people to approach a problem there I think there is some utility in that and some benefit 
Because someone might have a different experience or have learned something else in their past to help me with a certain problem. Sure, but you know, but like would that. you take a less qualified person if it means having a more diverse school? Even or just more based on pure person? racial diversity, no. No. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, affirmative action was put in place by Lyndon B. Johnson, right? Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960s. Uh, when when the whole civil rights movement was going on, and the reason why they did that is because there was no, uh, there was His literally were literally racist. They were literally racist. Yeah, exactly. And, and affirmative action is just carried on from there. Hmm. Um, but but it, the reason why it was first put in place is because there were literally no black people in universities uh, in the prestigious universities. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not against giving. And that was because of yeah. literal racism. You're right. No. I'm not against giving like underprivileged kids scholarships who couldn't afford it, but. Yeah. They still have to earn it as well. And, and you're also saying the Asian kids didn't earn a test score or whatever. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, if the criteria is race, then it's racist to, you know, say that person, yes, that person, no. Um, as if an Asian American who didn't get a, you know, who got a really high test score and the only reason, you know, they got a high test score, or they did, you know, all the 500, you have to be in like 700 clubs and run them all to get into Harvard and whatever and have a perfect score and, all your teeth have to be in a line and like all the crazy crap they made you to, you know, get in Harvard as Asian kid has everything he needs. And then a black, you know, African-American kid who has less test scores, but has other stuff. They admit him, but they don't admit the Asian kid. That's just racist. You know what I mean? There's nothing, there's, there's no other way you can put it. Okay. So back onto the whole black lives matter thing. Do you think they have a legitimate claim, which is that black people in America have been disenfranchised? So you can have a leg- legitimate claim without any proper like recourse of action. Of course, African Americans were enslaved for a long time in this country, and during that period of time, uh, people who were free also had the ability to accumulate wealth, and that wealth and then- wealth usually stays with families and stays longer, right? Uh, and so you have you know okay, so m- money more proportionately with people who have been free longer. I don't think that's a very disputable, you know, I'm not being very out there with that type of claim. Now, at the same time, uh, you have to say, okay, well, how do we start to encourage uh, minority populations to... Now, this isn't something, uh, and I should make it... Now, slavery, obviously, making it really, really bad, but for any immigrant population, let's say the Italian-Americans or the Irish-Americans, they weren't enslaved, they might as well have been in New York and these other places, like yeah, with definitely. the wages that they got, with the places that they used to live. And, you know, now today, Irish Americans, Italian Americans are even as prosperous as, as the wasps. I think it's worth noted, noting, though, that even post slavery, racism didn't end there. There were neighborhoods that would ban African Americans. Yeah, sharecropping. Sharecropping also persisted. Yeah, they didn't have the opportunities still for a no. long time. They definitely had it didn't vote worse what, the 60s? than Irish Americans, worse than yeah. Italian Americans, but uh, Italian Americans and Irish Americans, even German Americans to some extent, they definitely had the same effects of like they're the Irish neighborhoods, they're the Italian neighborhoods. Like I think eventually they got integrated in though. They got integrated in, but it took it took years, and it wasn't like you you fit like seventeen Italians in like one apartment as big as you know bigger. Uh, so, sorry, smaller than even this room. They'd fit just tons of people, and you'd see photos and stuff. So, so uh, in New York yeah. now, now those people eventually, you know, continued on. And there's plenty of African Americans in the middle class, even in upper class stuff. Uh, and I'm not saying it, but that they've had a really, you know, they had a t- harder time with slavery or whatever else. Okay, so 
you can make once you start making that claim, the people make that claim to get compassion. They make that claim that that claim to get an emotional response, which is the reason why this I'll say it, why this claim works on white college educated women more than disproportionately more than it does on men, which is uh, it's an emotional claim of you need to be compassionate for these disenfranchised people. It's not actually it, in the rational claim. You're like, okay, agreed. Now, what do we do about that? But for them, it's an emotional claim. You're like, I want to feel a part of, you know, making this relationship better. Okay. Now the BLM people take a communist revolution stance, basically where, well, you know, uh, which is, also, it's not provided by reason. It's provided by emotionality and compassion. It's weaponized compassion. You're using compassion to convince somebody of some ideology. Sure. And, and sorry to interpose this, but I think there's also this, this piece of faith as well. Because um, a friend of mine said that, well, if, if black people in America are telling us that they're being disenfranchised, we should just believe them and that's that. We shouldn't question them. We should only believe them because I'm white and they're black and that's that. Yeah, it's totally fake. Yeah. There it's was an article that, that Nate sent me the other day. It's called The Cult Dynamics of, of Wokeness. And wokeness being, you know, the the shorthand for like racial, uh, you know, you're in with the the woke crowd who's going to cure racism and all this type of stuff, right? By by banning, you know, random crap and cancer culture and the whole thing. Uh, there's a cult dynamic to the wokeness because there's a whole like ideology to it there's if you're going to be an ally to the movement but you're a white person well you can never truly be an ally because you're a white person sure so you and, have and to you, you have also, to be always trying to like get the racism out of you you have to be making reparations there's a kind of confess your sins attitude to that right which is a religious yeah thing. and i think admit it's only you're being, a sinner and confess your sins admit you're systemically racist and always be trying to fix your systemic racism which is so <sighs> that's a confess your sins and uh always be asking for forgiveness the second part of it, faith-based wise, is here's the system. America is systemically racist. That's a faith-based argument because it's not based on reason or rationality or whatever. It's based on compassion and it's based on a vulnerability of the emotions because everyone does feel like, oh, well, I need to help or whatever. So you exploit the vulnerability of the natural emotions. You make a faith-based claim. They buy the ideology. They confess their sins to you. And now anyone who doesn't agree with them or who disagrees with them is a is a heretic, basically, or an enemy or or somebody outside the religion that needs to be attacked. Or non-compassionate people. That's yeah. how you can care. And you can't them. reason with these people because it's a faith-based thing. So you have to like literally knock the ideology out of them somehow. Yeah. yeah. So there's no reason with somebody who has an ideological faith-based claim. So at that point, disagreement is going against my religion it's going against my woke culture so it's it's a cult it, like you're saying it's a cult dynamic yeah definitely it's definitely a cult dynamic a religious faith-based principle yeah and there's and there's also this notion of us versus them as well which which persists in, in the community from from the people that i've talked to that have gone to these uh protests and that have actually participated in some you know certain heinous things it's a it's a very us versus them when you have police who are shooting uh rubber bullets at you and injuring people around you then that fires people up more it's a very it's you feel this tension between me versus them and that's a very when you have that it's like a war mentality right um when when one of your brothers in war dies beside you 
that unifies the whole group of people more to fight against those brother to fight against the people. So it's it it only increases the tension of us versus them, mm-hmm. um, and so that's very much a part of it as well. And so yeah, you could say that contributes to that cult like aspect of of the uh, Black Lives Matter people. It's uh, it's going to be interesting too because this is going to. I think most people who aren't in the woke culture are going to realize like this is nuts, this is crazy. They're burning down stuff, and it's just going to be more support for Trump, especially because the Dems aren't condemning this type of thing, or only more recently they're condemning this type of stuff, right? Now, recently Biden spoke out at least against the like rioting. Yeah, the Democrats are finally realizing that people aren't going to vote for them if they're supporting people who are burning down their their house. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thought? Yeah, yeah. who would have thought? <laughs> Joe knows. <laughs> yeah, those. What, what's the? Uh, the I don't more you Joe. Oh, the more oh, you the Joe. More you Joe. Yeah. Oh. yeah. You guys should look those up. The more you Joe on YouTube. Oh, oh geez, my goodness. I, you know what? I can't even. I can't even make fun of him. I just feel bad for him. You know, I, it's not even. I can't. I can't even say early oh, onset. Know, look how stupid this guy is. It's just. I feel sorry for the guy. All right. I want to switch to this. How much longer is Franciscan gonna be open? Well, I don't know. This is my first year. We'll I have no what, comment. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what Wednesday says because wasn't it like only five cases last Wednesday? But more people have been Clem is tested. I, Clem, I think Clem mentioned the fact. So Clem and Harold. Uh, by the way, if you guys haven't seen the, uh, if you haven't listened to the podcast on modesty I did with Clement, it was fire. That was just two days ago. Uh, it's it'll be right below this podcast. So definitely check that one out. But yeah, so he mentioned. There, I think there's more cases. And here's the thing. If you're in the same room as any of these people, Franciscan's telling you to quarantine. Now, I did you notice today I didn't wear my mask in class? <laughs> oh, in Plato's, I think I noticed. Yeah, in Plato's, I did. Well, because Friday. literally, even if you're wearing your mask, they went back on their word of if you wear a mask in class and everyone wears masks, you won't have to self-quarantine. They did? They're making people, if you're in the same classroom, you have to quarantine. Even if you wear a mask? Even if you wear a mask. Where'd you hear that? Because that's... Pretty sure I, that was from. If that's true, because I heard that the deal with the whichever. Yeah, but I'm pretty was, sure if you had so if you were in contact, and that includes being in a classroom with people, you got to quarantine, and everyone has to quarantine, regardless mask, whatever. Because they're taking this stuff super seriously. We're trying not to spread COVID and stuff. So far, it's been so good, and and like we're on week three. I mean, it's just insane, and it, it's like things are going too well. It seems like, and uh, I just hope it can continue. The the friars. I have, very to, so I have to say, I'm so immensely frustrated that people haven't recognized how non-serious COVID nineteen is. What the hell? Totally agree. Totally agree. We, haven't we figured out that COVID nineteen only kills like 002 percent of people? And here's another thing: I understand professors are some some professors are older people. Like I don't know how many professors are b- above sixty five and how many are below sixty five, but I do know this. That students are usually below twenty, below twenty one, and they're even if they get coronavirus, they're not going to die. They're not going to die. In fact, it's overwhelmingly that they're not going to die. Um, and it's just so frustrating that there's still this idea that oh, anyone who gets coronavirus is like fifty percent they're going to die. Like they're it's fifty fifty. They might die or they might not die. No, it's like point oh two oh two percent of people who get coronavirus die. And this this uh, this notion still persists. I saw I saw a very interesting study the other day, where they asked uh, Americans how many people they thought had died from coronavirus, and the number one answer was thirty million. Thirty million. Well, this is one of those things too. Like, 
when they give them a map and they're like point out America on this map and they like point to Iran and stuff. Have you seen those videos? I have seen those. Yeah, I don't know how much of that's cherry picking. I wonder how many people. Well, it does make you wonder. Have was, you, those oh, things okay. always make me lose so faith my, in Americans. I think but. my 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 maybe it's cynical, maybe it's not. But it's John, like, you've never been cynical. I no, don't know what no, you're talking about. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm getting over it. But anyway, look, these are comedy bits, usually on either late night or shows trying to do a comedy segment, right? Yeah. So they're not going to show someone who knows what they're doing. They could interview a hundred people and you get the five that didn't know what they were that talking absolute about. Absolute idiots. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to show the person who's like, well, it's right there. Duh. Yeah. No, for real. Yeah. Uh, but if you interviewed us and I pointed to Iran and said, that's the USA. That's a threat. I definitely wouldn't that's, be. That's, that's definitely a just a threat that's just from you. A threat? <laughs> you're, you're, that's you threatening that's the Iranian government. That's just death to Iran. Uh, yeah. By the way, that, that phrase... I saw a video that was trying to like contextualize the death to America thing and saying like, well, this is a while back. Have you noticed terrorism hasn't been an issue for like a year and a half now? I think I think terrorism is a political propaganda tool. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we don't need oil. Anymore. Yeah, because we don't need oil. I look. Notice how there's always something America is supposed to be afraid of for like the last forever, right? It was terrorism for the longest time. It was gun Cold violence. War. It was Cold War stuff. Like, the government always wants you to be afraid of something. Think about how... When was the last time we had a major terror attack that you remember? Or that terrorism was even news? Um, Boston Marathon was... Boston Marathon bombers. Yep. Now, notice how there hasn't been anything in months since COVID. Oh, the news has been all over. CIA so. is behind all terrorism well, attacks. Okay, if we're going to give this face value. Proven! The Guys news has been focusing on, on other show. stuff. With well, a, I mean, okay, so I, so yeah. that's the thing about the CIA, and that's the thing about just American news in general, is that if you can, if you can convince the public that they should be afraid of a certain issue, then that sways public opinion uh, for, for whatever. So, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, you could say, well, terrorism is a threat to America and that, you know, people in Kansas should be afraid that they might get bombed and all this stuff. Well, that will sway the whole public opinion to going into war with Iran. And it's the same thing with, you know, uh, with with many other parts of American history, which is, oh, well, Cuba is a huge threat and we should invade Cuba or Vietnam is a huge threat. If Vietnam falls, then who knows? Australia might fall to communism and that'll be really close to home. And uh, it's always been no, used. Australia can go. I don't really care about Australia. But you get my point, you know, right? Yeah, it yeah. sways public opinion and it, it justifies certain actions from the United States. Because if if the United States did something that was against public opinion, then they would have internal problems. Mm. And so that's that's always why uh, you, using fear as a tactic to to sway public opinion has been so successful. Because if I can say, oh, well, you should be afraid of this for this reason. Then that means okay, people are more likely to support me going to war with you know Iran or Vietnam. It's been used for a very long time. Um, and, and another thing, so there was there was a uh, the Contras in I forget what which uh, country it was the so, Iran Contra scandal. No, no, no wait, it wasn't. It, was, um, it was South American. Countries. South American. Yeah, I think it might have been Honduras. But but uh, what happened was there. So there were nuns that had been killed um, in. There had been nuns that had been killed in a uh, in a town from these um, from insurgents, these insurgents, yeah. And it didn't. It made the very back of the newspaper of the day. 
very, very back. But one person from the United States had been killed when they were uh, from the from the basically the political rival of the United States. One person from the United States had been killed by these political rivals, and it made the headlines. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, why the heck did it make the, the headlines? Because it was in the interest of the United States government to put it as the headlines to sway public opinion. And this is what Noam Chomsky talks in his book, Manufacturing Consent, which is super important, uh, which is super important for understanding the um, media in America, which is the media in America only covers what is what is helpful for the United States government. And the reason why they do that is because if they don't please the United States government, they won't be invited to meetings to cover important topics. Mm. And the media themselves are are um, they have to be uh, they have to be representing the people who are putting money to their company, which is the, the advertisers. And so there's, a, there's this role between three per th- three people: the uh, government, the media, and the advertisers. And the media is is uh, helping the United States government sway public opinion, um, so that they can be invited to the table, so to speak. And the media is pleasing the advertisers so that they have m- enough money to meet at the table, right? And the United States government gives credibility to the media because mm. without the United States government's credibility, no one takes the media seriously. And it's such an it's a really interesting book, and that's a very short summary. But um, I don't even know what we were talking about originally. No, no, no. And it plays right into you remember the 2016 election, right? Trump was the meme candidate originally, right? No one thought he was serious. No one thought he could actually get the nomination. And if you remember, the mainstream media was all over it all the time. It was just Trump, 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 Gave him so much free press. They played right into it because they knew people were interested in him. And uh, it's it's the same thing of like, they thought they were providing negative publicity, but all publicity is good publicity because people hear about you. And uh, and if they're talking about you and hear about the, hearing about you, then they're going to think about you. And when they think about you, then that can shape and your also, public opinion. As it developed, they played into his own narrative so much and validated it. He was like, look, fake news. They're against me. And then they just kept attacking him, which validates his narrative that look, the left wing fake news media hates me. You know? It was really it was yeah, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant move. He got memed super hard by internet culture. Uh the mainstream media attacked him all the time, which gave him tons of press, gave him tons of publicity. He's a very, you know, very um well spoken, super got the comebacks. He's uh, very well quick spoken. on his. Sorry, well spoken is probably. I should say quick on his feet. I think is better than well spoken. Well spoken in the sense of like he can say stuff quickly that's on point, and uh, in the sense of like replying, like when he when he when Hillary Clinton was like, uh, you know, we don't need Donald Trump in charge of our justice system, and then he he says, yeah, if I was, you'd be in jail, right? Like stuff like that, yeah, right? Yeah, he's a straight shooter in terms of. Uh, what he says. Not well-spoken. I agree with you on that. Now, he's gotten more well-spoken, by the way. If you listen to some of his speeches, he's really come into his his speaking style recently. It's He's no JFK or Abraham Lincoln, but he's definitely a good speaker at this point in time. He's definitely, he's figured out how to kind of tone it down at, at some points. Anyways, regardless, the media, yeah, totally, they made, they were part of making the monster of, of what Trump, you know, his candidacy and the fact that it was such a big deal and the fact that he won in such a spectacular way. And they never stopped. They still, it's all the news is Trump almost all the time. It's just him. And and it's, we're back to an era of a one person 
you know, really politically dominated conversation. Uh, we've seen this in different times, right? Like Teddy Roosevelt back in the day was definitely a one person political discussion. There was stuff going on, but like Teddy Roosevelt was such a unique, very force filled figure that people knew about him. FDR was the same way. Um, Reagan was, you know, to a large extent that way. He was just such, such a figure that, um, you either really loved him or you really hated him. But I don't know if we've, we've seen someone like Trump who is just literally everything is pro or con. You either hate Trump or you love Trump. And if you're in between, really, you're going to end up either hating him or loving him. Like he just I've polarizes to avo- you to that. I've managed to avoid both so far. And now we hate you, John. <laughs> I, I will not say that I love him personally, and I will not say that I hate him. Oh, I love him. Personally. Well, you, you have to keep in mind, Trump is not I would a drive my boat with a Trump flag on it. Have you seen those those uh, boats? You shared something yeah, those are in great. the group chat. Yeah. Those are great. Yeah, Anyways. well, Trump Trump isn't Catholic. Trump, Trump is not Darn. Catholic, which sucks. Um, and you know, every, after his speeches, he say he might say, you know, God bless or something like that. You know, he might make a, uh, you know, certainly more pro religion than than the Dems. That's for sure, I'm certain. So, but but he isn't he isn't Catholic, and so you have to keep that in mind yep. when talking about Trump. And and he does, he does say some stupid things every once in a while. You have to admit that. Mm-hmm. But as the leader, you know, of our country right now, he's certainly better than, well, can't say certainly because Hillary Clinton was never president, but I'm, but, it, you know, he's about a hundred and a hundred and a hundred percent sure. Definitely better than Hillary Clinton, you know, well, Hillary was never a president, but say it again. It's hard to <laughs> <laughs> say it again. It just makes me happy. Uh, but yeah, I think he's gonna, I think he's gonna win again. I don't know if Biden really has much of a chance. Isn't it crazy that Democratic Party uh, put Joe Biden as their candidate? Of all the candidates they had, they went with Joe. Crazy Joe, man. Dementia-ridden. I have a theory that's not substantiated enough for me to be comfortable with it, but I mean... Uh Uh-oh, John, you always roast me on that. (laughs) I suspect the establishment, the Democratic Party, I mean, obviously in the last election in 2016, they colluded against Bernie. They don't like him. And I think a, maybe not the exact same, but I think they definitely didn't want him to win this time around. Because with a fractured, the early and mid polling showed with the fractured vote between all these candidates, Bernie was leading. And they're like, look, if it ends like this, he's going to win California, you know. Bernie has the delegates. So they started having people drop out to consolidate the moderate vote to Biden. Because you look late on when Buttigieg and who was the other one? I can't even remember who Elizabeth it was. Warren? Was it Warren? dropped out, which consolidated all non-farther left votes on Biden. Essentially, it was a two-horse race, and then Biden had the delegates to win. I I wonder what behind-the-scenes stuff went on. Like, the Democratic Party's like, look, Pete, if you drop out now, we'll scratch your back, you know? We'll consolidate around Biden. Yeah, we'll give you a nice, comfy position if you win. Or something, you know, something along those lines just to consolidate the vote around Biden to make sure that, that that socialist doesn't win, you know? Yeah, well, Bernie Sanders was a direct threat to the Democratic Party. Yeah, you I know, think he, the he country, didn't. I mean, I think, and I don't support. I don't yeah. support Bernie Sanders. I think you know socialism's bad, but I mean, I you think know, he is. He ran on the same idea too, as Donald Trump, which is you know we're we're anti-establishment. He, yes, he also has a populist appeal, but I think his, I think his socialist brand isn't that popular within his party, and I think that's evidenced by the party seemingly not liking him and working against him in 2016 and possibly in 2020, and also. 
nationwide, I'm not sure how much the older generation tends to be comfortable with it. Yeah, it's usually the younger people who are voting for that's Bernie. That's the impression I've got. I haven't looked into it a, a whole lot, but that's the impression. It's I probably get. his four houses. I think it's what uh, that kills him. Bernie Sanders? His four houses? Yeah, did you know about that? Look, no, one's a camp. I Look, know that. One, that doesn't sound one very is in proletariat. One is in Vermont, and I only use that one for all of my campaign, tri- tri- campaign trips. And... Uh, <laughs> That's a terrible Bernie. Yes, it's terrible, I know, but not, not as not terrible very as all. Bernie Sanders having four houses. <laughs> I understand at least two. I mean, okay. Washington and Vermont make sense at the very least. Yeah, no, Washington, okay. I can see it, maybe. He works Washington's there, man. Good, he, needs to, he, needs, he needs to place a crouch while he's at work. Well, lads, it's been a good podcast. I, I don't know if we're ending earlier or whatever we're ending. You want to kill it now? It's 11 something. I don't know. It's 11.06. This is a late podcast. If you guys are listening to this, you made it to the end. Have a have a sip of something good, like Lagavulin 16 year. Uh, $100 this, whiskey. This Cal and Alex show was sponsored by Lagavulin 16 year. Not Island really, but if they want to. Scotch. Dude, if they want if to, they I will take to. your sponsorship whiskeys. Dude, I uh, look, they had Nick Offerman as their uh, sponsor for their whiskeys all the time. I oh, know with all your Cal freaking, and Alex show. With all your deep state and Trump talk, we're not getting a sponsor. <laughs> it's your <laughs> fault. For sure. I've been it's silent on this. It's my deep state stuff. Yeah, that's what's that's what's killed us. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show with special guest John Sillian, my brother Gabe. Uh, it's been great. We will be back on Thursday evening. Supposed to be having Nick and Athanasius Cirilla on Nick for NFP, NFP with Nick and Nash on the air or the equivalent in the internet age. So there's a lot to talk about on that. I don't really know all my positions on it, and I want to be able to ask him a lot of questions because NFP, uh, you know, they think it's almost like Catholic contraception. It's like Catholic idea of contraception. Um, so there's a lot to ask them about on that one, but uh, that's going to wrap it up for us. Kellen Alex show. Uh, make sure to find us on social media. We're on Facebook and other places. Uh, this podcast, subscribe to us, Spotify, Apple podcast, Castbox, wherever you get your podcast, we are there. And uh, yeah, peace out everybody. Yeah. Yeah. If there's a comment section, leave a comment down below. Tell us, uh, join the conversation. Join the conversation. Kellen Alex show. Thank peace you out everyone. Listening.